I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Marcel Cosman. Hannah, to get us ready for today's topic, I want you to tell me about the weirdest community you've ever been part of in the sorting chat. We're talking about imagined communities today, and it got me thinking about some of the weird communities I've been part of. For example, Marcel, did you know that I was briefly a horse girl? (laughs) This is incredible. Do you mean like you collected toy horses or do you mean like... I rode horses. rode horses. Oh my God. I competed. You competed. I was a member of the Ottawa Valley Hunt and Pony Club. (laughs) When you competed, you had to, like, have a special second collar to cover your other collar because you would be docked points if buttons were showing. It was very weird. That's incredible. I really do feel like Pony Club, in many ways, with its inexplicable customs and strange costumes (laughs) and esoteric insider information, really prepared me for academia. Anyway, Marcel, have you been part of any weird communities? Probably, but not that I can think of off the top of my head. But you know what this is making me think of? My mom was also a horse and pony girl. And she won a competition at the Picton Fair and shook Pierre Elliott Trudeau's hand while he was doing a campaign tour or something. It was before he ever became prime minister. But nobody in my family was at the fair to see it, and nobody believes her. (laughs) Pierre Elliott Trudeau, for those of you who don't know, being a former Canadian prime minister. Indeed, the father of the current Canadian prime minister. (laughs) Ugh, and they say that aristocracy is dead. Ah, not here. We're heading into strange new territory today, people, namely a theoretical text that Hannah has never read and that I have only just read for the first time. But before we start learning new things, let's go over some stuff that we're already familiar with in revision. So in our first episode on Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, we really hurt our brains thinking about structuralism. but. It was a good thing we did because today's episode is all about nationalism. So just like the elements of story that we take for granted, the very idea of the nation state is so 
deeply entrenched in our contemporary understanding of the world that we need to really step back and understand the building blocks of what a nation is and why it's so darn important to people. In other words, how does the nation mean? So nationalism, it turns out, has a lot more to do with the naturalization of the reproduction of power than it does, say, poutine or maple syrup or a Trudeau. And naturalization is also very interestingly the word that we use to describe somebody who becomes a citizen. They become a naturalized American. So it's definitely a loaded term for sure that in some cases means normalized and in others means to make it appear natural. But the tropes we use to represent the nation, the stories we tell about what makes a Canadian, for example, are exactly how the nation is reproduced. So this episode is pretty much going to continue our ongoing discussions of class, of ideology, and even of how print culture connects to those structures. So to refresh your memories, ideology is the imaginary relationship we have to the real conditions of our existence. The imagined relationships inherent in ideology help to explain things like why the proletariat hasn't risen up and seized the means of production yet. We've also talked about how ideologies and capitalism are supported by the state, sometimes quite violently, as in the example of the prison system, which we passingly mentioned is a repressive state apparatus. That's basically like a thing that the state does to violently stop people. So, you know, in this case, the repressive violence of the state pairs with ideology to keep people under the boot heel of the ruling class, so to speak. And this same repressive violence gets covered up or justified through popular discourses around issues of what we might call national interest. So terms like Criminality, justice, culture, identity, these are just metaphors that rationalize oppression and state violence. Basically, every episode we've done so far is required listening for the discussion we're about to have. But before we dive any deeper into the quagmire of the nation, let's take a quick look at how nations are represented in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Hannah, I see that you made a chart. I did. I I mean, it's not a very good chart because I'm new at it. It's no Marcel chart, but, you know, I've done my best. And the reason I made this chart is because I think it's really helpful for us when we are talking about nationalism and the nation to start just noticing them a little bit more. We have already linked nation to ideology. And one of the things about ideology is it's really hard to notice because it is, by definition, naturalized. That's right. And so just starting to pay a little bit more attention to what this book has to say about the idea of the nation is a helpful starting point for us. So Goblet of Fire is the first book in the series where we really get a sense of the magical world outside of Harry's bubble. For example, Little Whinging, London, Hogsmeade, Hogwarts, you know, those, that sort of small geographical range that Harry usually has. We've had a few allusions to other countries in some of the previous books. We've heard briefly about Egypt and Albania, but this is where we really start to get a sense that there are witches and wizards that come from other places. So I'm going to run us through the countries that we hear about. Country the first, Albania, makes another appearance and continues to signify almost exclusively as a place people go to disappear. <laughs> I don't know why Albania gets such a bad rap in these books, but it really does. And we talked about Albania in our Orientalism episode and the way that sort of it signifies as an Orientalized space in Europe. So, you know, there's something going on <laughs> with the way that going to Albania means that you're going to die. So Albania, we get just a passing reference to because it's where Bertha Jorkins disappeared. 
the other nations we encounter primarily at the Quidditch World Cup, which being a worldwide sports competition gives us this opportunity to see people from all over the world camping. I don't know if you actually (laughs) camp at major sports events. I don't think you do, but cool. It's like Coachella meets the Olympics. It's Burning Man. (laughs) So the first other place we get a reference to is Africa. Ah, yes. Yes. Famously, one country. Definitely not a country, but almost never divided in the imagination of these books. The only African nation that ever gets mentioned specifically, as far as I'm aware, in the whole series is Uganda, which is specified as having a Quidditch team. And where, when Rowling later goes on and retcons in a bunch of other magical (laughs) schools, that's also where she puts the African wizarding school. So what do we know about people from Africa? They wear long white robes and roast rabbits on the fire. End of information. Ask no follow-up questions. What do we know about witches from America? Mm. They're literally sitting under a star-spangled banner. (laughs) Cool. That's all we've got. (laughs) The nationalism starts to get a lot more specific when it gets into European nations. So, for example, the Irish, they love green and shamrocks and leprechauns. And when Harry walks through the, like, Irish region of the Quidditch World Cup, he just sees their grinning faces coming from out of their tents. But also, there's a constant insidious threat of violence while he's there. When they're asked who they're supporting, Ron says Ireland, and then is like, well, I wouldn't dare say something else among this lot. Mm-hmm. They're very friendly, but they could turn on you at any moment. Then we've got Bulgaria, and things we know about Bulgarians is that they are sullen, speak heavily accented English, their team mascot is the Vila, which has, for me, a sort of thematically unclear relationship to the Eastern European tropes, but we can return to that question. We know that they're also associated with Durmstrang, because Crumb goes to Durmstrang, that's his school, and so the Durmstrang students also sort of play into our understanding of Bulgaria, so they're dressed in shaggy matted fur and unused to luxury. (laughs) We also get a taste of France. What we know about France is that everybody says Z instead of V. We know that they have their own magic school and that they dress impractically in fancy silk clothes and love luxury and decorum. And then finally, we find out some stuff about England. You know, we know a little bit more about England. We know that they have a ministry that runs the magical government. We know that the children there go to Hogwarts, even though it's located in Scotland. And we know that they have a national newspaper, the Daily Prophet. What more could we need? That's all I've got for how we understand nations to operate. But it's kind of wild if we take a step back beyond the deep heavy-handedness of this evocation of national identity. Like, this is the kind of level of representation where if there was a Canadian there, they would be a Mountie in a canoe hugging a beaver drinking maple syrup. For sure. Like, that is the level of of nationalist discourse happening in this scene. But if we take a step back, we do need to ask, why would the wizarding world be organized around nation-states? I was thinking about this in relation to the conversation that Harry has with Charlie Weasley when they're still at the borough. And we know that the Weasleys are all going to cheer for Ireland. And I think that this does largely have to do with the idea of nationalism because Ireland does have a complicated colonial relationship to England. So we have Charlie explaining to Harry that he really wished that England had got through. And then he moves on to saying that Wales lost to Uganda and that Scotland was slaughtered by Luxembourg. So this, to me at least as a reader, suggests that the hierarchy of who it is logical for 
a British subject to support in the World Cup goes England, Wales, Scotland, Ireland. (laughs) This makes perfect sense to me in terms of the colonial history of the UK and violent separatist nationalism that has characterized those different places, the degree to which that nationalism has been expressed and has been violent. Like, we know that Ireland has the most recent, the most violent history of trying to separate from the UK, leading ultimately to, you know, the Republic of Ireland existing as a separate entity from Northern Ireland. And then sort of the next worst is Scotland, (laughs) which is like, gets along pretty well with England, but has its own parliament now and has had a referendum about independence and there are rumblings of nationalism and a desire for independence. And then my understanding is that Wales has sort of the least active nationalist independence movement of those different places. And so it is interesting to see that how much these English characters want to root for these different teams has to do with their relative proximity to English nationalism. Mm -hmm. England would be best, but then here are these, like, three (laughs) others that will do. (laughs) They'll do just fine. They'll do just fine. At least they're all native English speakers. But that hierarchy is, like the nation itself, naturalized in the text. In fact, the whole idea that people would spontaneously divide themselves along national lines is treated as almost a organic organization of humanity, particularly because it couldn't make less sense in the wizarding world. And so I think the interesting question to ask isn't so much what might our fan theories be for why the Wizarding World is organized like this, as it is, why is the nation the unit of human organization that we so readily turn to to try to understand things about groups of people? hmm I'm ready, Marcel. I'm ready to be transformed from somebody who cannot pretend to have read a foundational text in our discipline to somebody who can absolutely pretend to have read this foundational text in our discipline in transfiguration class. Like so many of our episodes, this theory portion is going to draw very heavily on a key figure, not because his analysis is flawless, but because his work on the topic has been made foundational. You know, I can already tell he's going to be a white man because you're basically starting with an apology. You would be correct. (laughs) (laughs) I am talking about none other than Benedict Anderson. Blah, 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 blah. Author of the book, Imagined Communities. Anderson and his infamous book are touchstones when it comes to scholarly conversations about nationalism and nations. And... Not without reason. Anderson is a darn cheeky writer, often adding quips and sarcastic asides to the quotations he includes. So, Imagined Communities was first published in 1983, and so that's before the fall of the Soviet Union. So, imagine writing an entire book about nationalism and discussing the union of Soviet socialist republics as an exception that proves the rule. And then a few years after your book is published, this very exception itself dissolves into a bunch of nation states. (laughs) Anyway, in the preface to the 1991 edition, the second edition, where Anderson both addresses the scholarly uptake of nationalism since Imagined Communities was first published, and also reckons with his own incapacity to predict the future and thereby predict the dissolution of the USSR. (laughs) He responds to his peer, Eric Hobsbawm, who is not famous, (laughs) suck it, Eric, who had dared to claim that the age of nationalism in 1990 was near its end. Anderson writes, 
Quote, Hobsbawm has had the courage to conclude from this scholarly explosion that the age of nationalism is near its end. Colon, Minerva's owl flies at dusk. So basically, Benedict Anderson is saying, yes, Eric, hindsight is 2020. <laughs> I'm glad you can interpret the pithy aside, Minerva's owl flies at dusk. Because I, as a reader, encountering that phrase would be like, that's cool. One of the reasons it took me so long to do the prep reading for this episode is because the book is full of this stuff, and I had to look them all up because I was like, I don't know. Don't know what you I don't know what this means. (laughs) So the owl thing is from Hegel. I'm not going to go into the details. But surely Anderson's imagined communities has become a foundational text to the study of nationalism for reasons other than the author's cheeky Hegelian asides. Yes, that's true. I'm not sure that I'd call the book an easy read, but it is an engaging read. And Anderson approaches the historical development of nationalism with rather impressive breadth. So where a lot of political theory written in English tends towards Eurocentrism, for example, Anderson is actually interested in nationalism's relationship to imperialism and colonization. And he also draws on representations of the nation and nationalism in fiction and poetry to illustrate his arguments. So walk me through his argument. What is unimagined community? So nation states are imagined communities in that they are big groups of people connected by their shared belonging to a place that isn't real. What? I know. It's an imagined community because I have nothing in common with the random people that I pass on the street, people who I will probably never actually meet, except for the fact that we are both citizens or we are each citizens of this made-up place called Canada. Okay, so it's not that the actual place isn't real. It's that the way we identify the place, the boundaries we attach to it, the significance we attach to it, that's not real. There's no inherent relationship between Canada and this physical place I am. Yeah, yeah. Thank goodness we talked about signifieds and signifiers in the last episode. Exactly, right? Like, Canada is no more real than the word tree is inherently representative of trees. So from Anderson, it's not so much the idea of the nation that I think is hard to wrap your head around, just like how it's not that hard to wrap your head around the plot of the novel. The hard part, the part that makes your head hurt, is figuring out how we got to this understanding of nation in the first place. Like, if Canada is made up, how come I have a passport with a Canadian flag on it? What is a Canadian flag? Why do I feel affronted when I have to pay extra for quote-unquote real maple syrup at a breakfast spot? And if I don't have anything in common with these randos that I pass on the street, how come so many of us have similar expectations and life experiences? So clearly the nation is real, but it's not. I mean, could we say that there's a sort of similar relationship to reality to say how we talk about race, which is it's not a biological fact, but it is a real construct that has real lived consequences in the world. So you can distinguish between saying something that is like real as in natural versus real as in has force in the world. Yes, I think that makes a lot of sense, especially when we think about the way that constructions of race have changed over time. Likewise, constructions and meanings of the nation and what it means to be a national citizen have changed over time. So what does Anderson tell us about the imagination of the nation? So Anderson makes three basic claims about nations. One, the nation is imagined as limited because no matter how big it gets, no matter how many people live in it, it has to have finite if elastic, as in if changeable, boundaries beyond which lie other nations. So he reminds us that no nation ever imagines itself as coterminous with all of humankind. 
So like no nation out there has the goal of global domination. Like the nation needs an other, a non-citizen. Yes. England always needs a France. Okay, number two, the nation is imagined as sovereign because the concept of the nation was actually invented in an age in which both enlightenment and revolution were just straight up destroying the legitimacy of divinely ordained hierarchical dynastic rulership. So nations as constructs arose at a time when religions were suddenly undeniably plural and the idea of freedom under God itself became a key motivation for state sovereignty. Marcel, what does sovereignty mean? So you know how sometimes people refer to the king or the queen as the sovereign? Yeah. Okay, so they are the sovereign because they have the autonomy and the right to make decisions. Mm -hmm. So a sovereign country is a country that makes its own decisions. So the church can't tell it what to do. The church can't tell it what to do. And the bigger country next door, in theory, can't tell it what to do. And the metropole can't tell it what to do. So like Canada and the United States, for example, both sought out sovereignty from the British crown because they wanted to make their own decisions. Gotcha. Okay. Thank you. You're very welcome. Okay, and then number three, the nation is imagined as a community because regardless of the actual inequality and exploitation that may and indeed does prevail within each, the nation is imagined in terms of fraternity, kinship, horizontal comradeship. Very rose-colored glasses. Such rose-colored glasses. And it's why otherwise intelligent people will surprise you by wearing a flag shirt on a national nationalist holiday. When you're like, no, you know we hate nationalism, right? No? I thought we were on board with that. But you've got a flag painted on your face, so I guess not. No, precisely. Nationalism is so deeply ingrained. The love of one's country is so deeply ingrained. Part of the reason why is because we teach children from the beginning of public education to love the country by, mm -hmm. like, singing the national anthem every day. And if you walk in the hall while the national anthem is playing, you go to detention. Hence, in schools, we immediately begin to introduce ideological and repressive state apparatuses to enforce nationalism. Precisely. Precisely. These all seem like kind of, to harken back to the word you used in the last segment, naturalized ideas that actually have a super complex prehistory that might actually denaturalize how the nation works. Am I on the right track here? You are absolutely on the right track. Let's do some history. I'm going to try to explain Anderson's overall historical argument somewhat chronologically, because what we take for granted as the nation state today in 2021 and our contemporary experiences as national citizens is really a function of the post-war capitalist economy, whereas the idea of the nation is itself a function of late modernity. So like what we think of as being Canadian and the idea of the nation are sort of different historical constructs. The idea of what a nation is and the idea of what a nation state is change and fluctuate over time because of, because of things like capitalism. Okay. All right. Well, that's confusing, but you know what's not confusing? Feudalism. Tell me about it. <laughs> All right. A lot of moving parts contribute to the rise of nationalism and to nation states. But let's first remember that for a very long time, power was concentrated in the hands of aristocracies and dynasties. And moreover, that power was supposedly divine, God-given. So prior to the Enlightenment, it was God 
who gave the king his right to own and rule over the land. And the fact of this divine right was communicated to the common people plowing the fields via a very select few who could read and thus interpret the sacred texts. In other words, the religious literati had exclusive access to the sacred texts that gave them and the dynasties and the aristocracies their power. These texts were inaccessible to the common folk for two reasons. One, they were written, and two, they were written in sacred languages like Latin, not the vernacular. The vernacular being the language that people actually speak in their day-to-day in particular regions. Exactly. So during this period, religion in general, and particularly religion as it is interpreted by a very small group of people, is what gave meaning to the otherwise unexplainable. So the divine right of kings, the value and purpose of suffering and death, and even the nature of time. So also, during this period, the people ruled by the king would not have thought of themselves as citizens of the king's land, but simply as members of their local communities. Mm -hmm. For most of them, their lives began and ended in those very communities, and so they didn't really need to think about anyone beyond their neighbors, and they certainly wouldn't have had reason to identify with strangers unless they met. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So society in this period, you know, pre-Enlightenment, pre-16th century society is, as far as I understand, pretty rigid and hierarchical. So it's like you are born into your social standing and that is the social standing you have. You are not climbing. You are not going to be born a peasant and become the king. That's not a thing. And in addition to that sort of lack of mobility within those hierarchies, there's also a comparative lack of like actual physical mobility. Like you're probably just not going a lot of places. That is exactly right. But gradually the moving parts of what we now call modernity begin to shake things up. In the early modern period, we have the invention of the printing press. We have the beginnings of European exploration beyond the ocean's tide. (laughs) And we have scientific discovery among other things. So all of this new access to knowledge started making aristocratic and dynastic claims to rule a little bit dubious. Oh, because it relied on just people not really asking a lot of questions. Precisely. Not asking questions and not having knowledge. With access to religious texts in the vernacular, for example, regular people began to question the divinity of rulers (laughs) as Especially the divinity of those rulers who did not have the people's interest in mind. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So because we'll never let the argument that time is a social construct go. Print is also a major contributor to the average person's ability to identify with their fellow citizens, most of whom they could not and would never meet. So there's a whole argument to be made here about time, which is most certainly a social construct. <laughs> Because this ability to identify with strangers has to do with the ability to perceive simultaneity, which didn't exist before print. It just, it, it, the way that people understood time was just different. It had to do with the preordained and then the fulfillment of the preordained. So novels and newspapers both provide their readers with the tools to see themselves as aligned with others, irrespective of whether or not they've ever met, because they both exist in this place simultaneously. This is where coffee houses come in, right? Like people would go into coffee houses in the 18th century and read the newspaper and talk about what they'd read. And it started to generate this idea that like they had a shared identity with other people who were reading the same thing. It was like a literacy revolution. Revolution. Yes, indeed. In fact, Hannah, the late modern period is all revolutions all the time. The French Revolution, the American Revolution, the Industrial Revolution, even the Russian Revolution, all of which have been made possible by things like print, 
and science. And along with these revolutions comes the emergence of nationalism. One thing I love about this is that nationalism and its relationship to revolution and to print is a real chicken and the egg situation. Which comes first, the idea of nationalism that leads you to revolt or the revolution that leads to (laughs) nationalism? The answer is, and this is the same argument that scholars of the history of print make, is that you can't say that print caused the revolution because nobody would have wanted print in the first place if they weren't trying to start a revolution. And so really, like, the question of of how does this change begin to foment is kind of an unanswerably complex one. But what we know is a bunch of revolutions happened, and then we had nations, baby. I think it's crucial to note here that Anderson identifies different kinds of nationalism. And I'm not talking about Canadian nationalism and American nationalism. On the one hand, we have the emergence of nation states as organized around popular vernacular. So like people who speak the same language and have the same cultural reference points. And they emerge in response to what the people themselves consider to be illegitimate rule. Popular national movements developed in light of a growing consciousness of shared culture. So the nation state, just to clarify, is where the state, which is the like political body that sort of governs, and the nation, which is like the cultural body with like shared history and shared language, are imagined as being the same thing, as inherently tied together, that the natural way for politics to be organized is around the unit of the nation. Yeah, that the leaders are themselves of the people who are governed. Yes, okay. So that makes it distinct from national cultures that exist within empires. Exactly. So this is actually a really smooth transition into what Anderson calls official nationalisms, which is a very tongue-in-cheek term for illegitimate ruling class efforts to avoid nationalist revolutions. Because these national cultures that exist within empires were themselves precisely the, 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 the groups of people that were seeking national sovereignty. And so official nationalism is where the ruling class of the empire or the dynasty reacts to popular nationalist movements. So with official nationalism... The increasingly obsolete ruling class seeks to maintain control of an otherwise disaffected or unrepresented people and to shore up the legitimacy of its rule by then mimicking some of the characteristics of popular nationalism. And British imperialism is a great and very instructive example of this. So right around the time that nationalism is, let's say, becoming cool in Europe, England starts shipping members of its middle class out to various colonies to spread what's called Anglicization around the world. So in this way, the crown recruited members of the middle class who might otherwise have been disaffected, impoverished, and otherwise ripe for revolution, and provided them with opportunities to play aristocracy, to represent England, and live in greater comfort and prestige than they would have done if they had stayed at home. And in so doing, Anderson suggests that the British crown secured its, for example, tenuous possession of Scotland, and also shored up the legitimacy of its aristocracy by giving middle-class subjects subjects of their own. In other words, British imperialism says to the British subject, including the Scots, it's okay that the English lords are naturally superior to you because you are naturally superior to these people over here. Go and rule over them. I know this history. That's Canada. That's like the whole thing that happened here. (laughs) So another cheeky aside of Anderson's that I really appreciate is the fact that he calls colonial militaries, quote, capitalism in feudal aristocratic drag because they were notoriously distinct from the military of the metropole and weren't actually real militaries. 
But official nationalism, and in this case, British imperialism, it's not actually nationalism. It's just the ruling class attempting to mimic nationalism to sort of stave off nationalist revolutions. And so if we think about British imperialism, it doesn't have those three characteristics of the nation that Anderson outlines. It is inherently not limited. The British Empire famously attempted to cover the globe. Yep. The British Empire denies the sovereignty of all except for the crown, and it doesn't perceive its citizenry as a fraternity. And one great example of this is the fact that while Indian magistrates might rule over sections of colonial India, they are never deployed to, say, Canada as representatives of the crown. So there's always a hierarchy between English-English and non-English British subjects. But while British imperialism failed to maintain control over the millions of people that it sought to colonize, it has succeeded in aligning English nationalism with Great Britain and the Crown, which I think is not insignificant and something that we see in Harry Potter. Yes, yes, we do. That kind of helps me to understand, like, how we see British people continuing to defend British imperialism from the standpoint of nationalism, even though imperialism is inherently not national. Yeah, because for the British subject, it was a kind of nationalism, just not for anybody else. Gotcha, gotcha. So Anderson himself, a nationalist, he really resists the idea that nationalism breeds racism. And while I don't agree with him, I do think that his argument is somewhat compelling. So he claims that nationalism and racism, including anti-Semitism, have divergent focuses. Specifically, he says that the, quote, dreams of racism have their origin in ideologies of class, end quote. Now, I do find this compelling And I want to come back to it when we talk about the Malfoys and the issues of mudbloods and blood purity and magic and all of that. Anderson argues that racism relies on claims to divinity among rulers and blood purity, reminiscent of the ideologies of and breeding practices of aristocracies. He further notes that while nations may wage war against one another, racism manifests itself not across national boundaries, but within them. So racism is typically not used to justify foreign wars, but it is absolutely used to justify domestic repression and domination. He likewise relates racism to official nationalism, which isn't supposed to be real nationalism, but is rather a class-based move to maintain power over the otherwise subjugated peoples. So what about how closely aligned nationalism is in the 21st century with white supremacy. The issue of white nationalism in our current society is more a response to transnationalism and globalization than it is to the kind of nationalism that Anderson is talking about quite romantically at times. The ideas of nationalism, the idea of what the nation is, these things change over time. And in what I think we might hesitantly call the postmodern period, (laughs) this period of late capitalism, we live in a very globalized society. And so, like, indeed, Minerva's owl flew at dusk. Nationalism is no longer the sort of defining feature of either international capital or economic or political exchange or movement or negotiation. Like, now it's transnationalism. It's globalization. So what I hear you explaining, Marcel, is that the way that I see nationalism and racism to be entangled with one another is a sort of function of post-modernity, as we've been calling it, because of the way that globalization means that lots of people are moving around all the time and that that political formation was just not the case so much 
in the sort of mid 20th century nationalism that Anderson is dealing with. Yeah, I mean, it is a fairly convenient argument for him to make that, like, nationalism is okay, imperialism is the thing that's bad, when, like, as Canadians, for example, our celebration of Canada Day is a necessarily, like, colonial and oppressive holiday. Like, for us, we can't separate those things, even though a political philosopher may be able to. I'm actually going to go ahead and venture to say that Anderson is wrong and that his wrongness has to do with a really limited perspective on what post-war culture actually was like for people of color, for example, in the UK, and that we can simultaneously say, well, he's a dead white guy, so probably wrong about a lot of things. But some interesting stuff to be pulled out of here in relation to nationalism and in relation to how racism is entangled with these sort of aristocratic fantasies of national purity. I think that's a great way to put it. He's definitely wrong, though. (laughs) Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Okay, listen, if you really want to trick everyone into thinking you're one of the 10 people who have actually read Imagined Communities cover to cover, we're gonna have to test your knowledge of these theories and how they work in OWLS. Okay, Marcel, based on everything we've just discussed, I want to revisit a basic yet deeply complex question that we asked earlier in this episode. Why the heck would there be nationalism in the wizarding world? I don't think that there is like a logical narrative explanation. I think that the only conceivable explanation is that the concept of nations and nationalism is so inherent to our understanding of the world, the author's understanding of the world, most people's understanding of the world that, like you said at the beginning of the episode, it's just a necessary and useful reference point. I think you're absolutely right that what we see in the text is this naturalization of the nation and of citizenship as a kind of way of identifying with one another as well as with particular organizations and particular cultural touch points, and that we also get gestures towards other ways of organizing the world, which in part for me comes back to the regionalism of the wizarding schools. Because the wizarding schools, while in some ways in this book they're being mapped against nationalism, so Hogwarts is the English school and Durmstrang is the Bulgarian school and Beaubaton is the French school, but that is absolutely not the case. I mean, one, Hogwarts is not in England, and Hogwarts as an institution predates the United Kingdom quite significantly. (laughs) Yes. Two, we know that Durmstrang and Beaubaton and Hogwarts are the only three major wizarding schools in the entirety of Europe. Now, what makes up the gap between all of the other many nations in (laughs) Europe is a matter of either fan theory or J.K. Rowling's, like, hand-waving tomfoolery over on Pottermore, being like, well, actually, people largely homeschooled. Like, (laughs) you just didn't think it through. Because there's no explanation for why there would be a wizarding school in Japan, but not China. No, exactly. The very fact that the schools are sort of set up along national lines is, like, totally anachronistic, because we don't have any evidence that they aren't nationalized. No one at Hogwarts got an invitation to either Durmstrang or Beaubaton. But they are 
regionalized. Like, I think they kind of interestingly point to three national form of cultural organization. Durmstrang is like the Slavic school and Beaubaton is like the Romance Languages School. And Hogwarts is like the Norman <laughs> Anglo-Saxon School. I don't know. But like Beaubaton is not just French students. It's French students and Italian students and Spanish students. Is it? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I did some research. This is the claim. And that Durmstrang serves all of Eastern and Northern Europe. This book deeply naturalizes nation as an organizing unit for understanding human cultures, the world, how people relate to each other. And we can see how sweatily it's attempting to naturalize nation when it gestures to wizarding institutions that predate the history you have described. So all of these schools are older than the nation state, mm-hmm. right? Oh, yes. They are all significantly older. They all predate it and they all kind of defy it because like Hogwarts is in Scotland. Similarly, it's established that they are at the 400 and something Quidditch World Cup, which means that the Quidditch World Cup would also predate the concept of the nation by several centuries. Yes, yes. And the whole idea of something being a World Cup makes zero sense prior to nations. And so even in those slippages, those moments where the text ceases to make sense, we can see reinforced a sort of compulsive desire on the part of the narrative to insist on nation as a enduring a historical fact rather than a very particular historical formation. I think that Anderson would also say that that is how nationalism functions. He does actually say in the book that it's a paradox, right? That on the one hand, it is a fact of history. It starts at a particular time, but the way in which nationalism like rallies its people depends on a very heavy reliance on, like, the idea of antiquity. Like, we have always been German or something, you know? Yeah, so because nationalism needs to be naturalized as part of how it operates, it needs people to, like, feel a deep identification with it to sort of buy into the ideological formation of the nation. It can't also be perceived as like a historical construct that began at a particular point for a particular function. So this is a thing that I didn't get into from Imagine Communities, but nationalism needs people to be willing to die for the nation. And you're not going to do that if you don't have like an emotional stake in the nation. And I think that we see the logic of this happening even in the moment when there are Death Eaters at the World Cup causing havoc and Mr. Weasley and his three eldest sons are like, we're going to help the ministry. Come along, boys. We've got a job to do. We must protect the state. Indeed, I think when we think about why it is that the Quidditch World Cup is the narrative event that introduces a book that's ultimately going to be about the Triwizard Tournament, that part of what it's doing is establishing, I mean, the existence of nationalism in the wizarding world, right? It's working very hard, that part of the text, to like establish that nationalism is a thing. But it's also establishing on the part of our heroes, not only their identification with the nation, but also their willingness to like fight for it, whether literally or figuratively. Their willingness to cheer for it, to wear a flag for it, to sing its national anthem, to bleed for it if necessary, that that is all being set up for us as how their identities are operating in the Quidditch World Cup chapters so that then when we are told 
that there is no choice but for this 14-year-old to compete in a deadly competition that he should not have been able to participate in and that is absolutely not qualified or able to participate in safely, that all of the heads of the houses, like, agree. They're all like, oh, well, yeah, yeah, I can't see a way around this. I mean, otherwise it would invalidate the legitimacy of the Triwizard Tournament as an institution. And it's like, okay, and then what would happen? Like, what <laughs> would be the consequence of that? But, like, it's already been naturalized for us. Of course it has to happen. He has been asked to represent his institution. And then that leads us into why it is so agonizing for him to have been selected as the false representative of his nation, because he wants to be a good representative of his imagined community, and he's perceived as a usurper. And particularly a usurper because the otherwise underdog Hufflepuff champion doesn't get the glory You know, there's one more piece of this book that I think ties into Anderson's understanding of the nation state and imagined communities in a really interesting way. And that is the fact that this is the book that contains the largest role the newspaper has played yet. We not only have multiple references to the Daily Prophet, but we actually get the introduction of this character, Rita Skeeter, this journalist. I was thinking as I was rereading the Rita Skeeter passages, the fact that she is actively misrepresenting what is happening we see via the enchanted quill that it's actively fabricating a mythologized version of reality. And then we get to see in real time how that mythologized version of reality has these real lived repercussions for Harry in a way that like really reminds us that the sort of reality of these imagined communities is shaped by the experience of that sort of simultaneous print culture. Yeah, print culture and print culture's power of representation. Like, even the way that Mrs. Weasley cries because she didn't know that Harry still cries about his parents. And it is indeed a powerful thing. And we're going to have to talk more in a future episode about Rita Skeeter as a character because there's a lot more going on there. But it is helpful for me to take a step back from my ongoing frustration with how poorly thought out the world building of these novels sometimes is, and instead saying, like, why is nation so important here? Or, as we asked at the beginning, how does nation mean? So I guess I was asking the wrong question. The question isn't why is there nationalism in the wizarding world, but how is the nationalism of the wizarding world operating in this text in order to do particular kinds of work? Oh, that's a great question. Let's do a whole episode about that. No. (laughs) Thank you, witches, for joining us for episode 22 of which, please. You can find the rest of our episodes by heading over to notsorryworks.com or ohwitchplease.ca or, of course, wherever podcasts are found. If you want to hang out with us more, we're also on Twitter and Instagram at ohwitchplease. Which Please is produced in partnership with Not Sorry and distributed by Acast. Special thanks to Not Sorry for having us And we're delighted to introduce to you our long-awaited brand new producer, who is confusingly named Hannah, but who we've decided to call Coach. Hi, Coach. (whistles) Welcome, Coach. If you're into the podcast, why don't you let us know by dropping a review on Apple Podcasts. At the end of every episode, we'll shout out everyone who left us a five-star review. So you've got to review us if you want to hear me do this. Thanks to Sada7686, Maria Dyregrierg, Dyregrierg, Glotzi, Cell0515, C. Sabrell Small, Small Cerebral, Midwifical Me, 
Not my daughter, you witch. Jenny Lovin, mom of it could be it could be Bogey or it could be Boogie and Andy Noel or Andy Noel. If you want to hear even more from us, don't forget to head over to patreon.com slash oh please to check out the many exciting forms of bonus content available to you, such as the witch please tell me segment that we're about to record after recording this episode for two hours. It's going to be weird. Definitely. Special thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon. We are physically incapable of reading off all of your names, but that doesn't mean we love you any less. On our next episode, we're continuing our discussion of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire with a whole new focus and a special guest. But until then... Later, witches.